TED Audio Collective. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors? Stop them in their tracks. With Paycom, employees do their own payroll. They're able to identify errors and fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. Not HR and payroll teams, not leaders, and definitely not employees. Shorted paychecks, timesheet corrections, unentered sick days, missing overtime hours, and expense mistakes are, well, unnecessary for everyone. Manage the process to make payday right with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. I think the racism in the theater is, it just comes from the fact that most of the people who are making the decisions in the theater world are white people who are used to talking to white people, used to making art for white people. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 16 years, Debbie has been talking with creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Debbie talks with Michael R. Jackson about his latest musical, which is about a black gay man trying to write a musical. It's not autobiographical. I think of it as self-referential. Here's Debbie, first with a couple of messages. I'm a native New Yorker, but since the beginning of the pandemic, I've been living in Los Angeles. I miss my hometown, but I love having more space, more sun, and a big garden. And almost nothing makes me happier than tending to the tomatoes and the foxglove and wildflowers while listening to hours of music. Sonus Move is the premium portable smart speaker, and it accompanies me wherever I go, indoors, outdoors, and even in my car. With an 11-hour battery, I can spend the entire day pulling weeds, planting seeds, and streaming tunes free and easy from Sonos Radio through the app. The design is world-class, and the sound is breathtaking. Sonos only works with experts in acoustics and engineering, and then collaborates with Oscar and Grammy-winning producers, mixers, and artists to ensure an unprecedented, state-of-the-art listening experience. If you want to know more about the best and most beautiful sound system in the entire world, please go to Sonos.com to learn more. And finally, a little personal ask from me. I love making Design Matters, and I'm always trying to make it better. One way to do that is to hear a little bit about you. 
If you have a few minutes, I'd be so grateful if you took a short survey about how you feel about the show at surveynerds.com slash design matters. That's surveynerds.com slash design matters. Thank you so much. Playwright, composer, lyricist, trash talker. That's how Michael R. Jackson identifies himself on his website. We'll see about the trash talking, but the rest is quite accurate. Jackson won the 2020 Pulitzer Prize in Drama for A Strange Loop. It's a groundbreaking musical about the creative process of an artist writing a musical, and it deals with issues of identity, race, and sexuality. A strange loop indeed. Today, we're going to talk about some of those loops in his extraordinary career. Playwright, composer, lyricist, trash talker, Michael R. Jackson, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Michael, I understand you grew up watching soap operas with your great aunt, Ruth. Mm -hmm. Um, Which shows were your favorites? I grew up on Days of Our Lives and Another World. And a little bit of Young and the Restless, but Days in Another Ooh, World were like my young shows. Young and the Restless. What intrigued you about soap operas? Well, I didn't know it at the time, but like I was learning how to tell stories and that like, and about what the the power of stories actually was. But like, you know, on a sort of surface, superficial level, I just liked watching like crazy things happen with like these people, like women getting into fights in like fountains and people being locked up in the basement by like their crazy ex-boyfriends and just was such a, a grand guignol melodrama aspect to it that just I found really, really appealing. You were raised in Detroit, Michigan. Your dad was a police officer for 26 years and then a security consultant for General Motors. Mm-hmm. Your mom worked in accounting. And I understand you started playing piano when you were eight years old. Mm-hmm. Did you grow up in a particularly creative environment? Um, I mean, neither one of my parents are particularly artistically inclined, but my brother and I both are sort of, my brother's like a, a really great rapper and like he is a musician as well. And like my parents just always wanted to keep me like really busy and I just tended to gravitate toward the arts as a kid. So like I took piano lessons, I took dance classes, I did child acting, then I started writing. Like it was just constant immersion in in the arts. Mostly my parents wanted to like keep me off the streets, you know, keep me from (laughs) falling in with a bad crowd. Oh, yeah. Um, I understand you did a Black History-themed commercial with the basketball player Grant Hill. <laughs> I did. That was, that was like my, <laughs> my one commercial that I did. You can find it on YouTube, actually. Yes, um, it's I actually was, really sweet. <laughs> yeah, I was like 11. Or, I think I was like 11 or 12. And um, that was when I had like a talent agent. And I think I got like $200 for it, which was like at that time more money than I'd ever seen in my life. You were also in a children's theater group called Paper Bag Productions that put on musicals. Wow, you were like doing a deep cut. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. You took dance classes for a year and you wrote poetry and fiction. And you've said that you didn't know what being a professional writer looked like other than the Jackie Collins and Stephen King novels you were reading in middle school. How did you first get exposed to those books and how have they influenced you? Well, my older cousin, for some reason, 
gave me a copy of Chances by Jackie Collins when I was like 10 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I'm fabulous. I already and love I th- this cousin. <laughs> I, mean, I think it was just because I was like pretty precocious and I like loved to read. And she just gave it to me and I like got really into it. And so I like read Chances and then I read Lucky and then I read Lady Boss. And then like I would always like find the quote unquote the good parts. And mm-hmm. I would show them to other kids in school. And then must have been one, pretty popular. <laughs> well, I guess. And then one day <laughs> I was in the school cafeteria and my the assistant vice principal was walking by and she saw it, me showing Ricardo Pack, I'll never forget. I was showing him some section of I believe it was it might not have been the Jackie Collins on the last point. It was another other book I remember reading called Juffy Kane. And, like, my teacher took the book from me, took the book from us, and, like, saw the section I was showing to him. And then she told my dad. And then my dad got, like, mad because I was, shouldn't, I was like, reading age-inappropriate, you know, material. And so I was, like, he, like, yelled at my cousin for getting me the books. And, like, and I was, like, forbidden from reading Jack and Collins. So then I just switched to Stephen King, because I already was reading, like, Christopher Pike novels, which were more young adult fiction, you know, popular young adult fiction at that time. And Stephen King was just, like, sort of a natural uh, extension of all of that. And I just, like, felt, I went wild for for his writing. And that sort of took me through middle school into high school. Were you a fan of the book Valley of the Dolls? I did not encounter Valley of the Dolls until probably college, like much much later. I wasn't aware uh, of it. I like I knew I'd heard book. I'd always had heard of it, but I what I didn't know what it was. And I saw the movie before I ever encountered the book, and then I never actually finished the book, which I need to <gasps> actually need to go and finish it. Oh my goodness, that book was dog-eared. With right. and, and spine cracked, I read it so often. So, for I think for me, it was like I remember reading like Judy Bloom's adult novel, Wifey, mm, and that wifey. one I was like, woo! But like because I had gotten in trouble with the Jackie Collins novel, I gave as soon as I read Wifey as quickly as I could read it, and I gave it away to like another cousin who was visiting because I didn't want my dad to catch me with Wifey in the house. <laughs> Oh, the the, the um, hardships of our childhood, <laughs> right? And then like being but discovered then, like, with dirty books. <laughs> well, yeah, but then what's funny about that is that like I ended up essentially outing myself when my dad found a copy of In- Invisible Life by Elan Harris oh, when I was yeah. like sort of coming out secretly. That was this funny thing because I'd gotten like an autographed copy of it. I went to Borders in Dearborn, Michigan, where Elan was doing a book signing with my friend Tamika and I got it signed and then like I was reading it and then literally my dad one day walked in my room and he picked up a copy of it and he's like who is what is this who is this and I said I literally said essentially I'm holding it for a friend like it was drugs right, <laughs> right. somebody gave it to me I don't know who right yeah. When you were 12, your mother took you to Toronto to see the plays Phantom of the Opera and Showboat. Mm-hmm. And I read you didn't really understand Phantom, but you were completely knocked out by Showboat. Why did it move you so much? Well, I think that 
early on, it was a sign that I was very interested in story um, and, like, really understanding what the story was. Because when I was watching Phantom of the Opera, I liked, like, I liked the way it sounded. Like, I liked the songs, but I couldn't really follow the story. Like, there were things about the story that, like, just didn't add up to me. And I think that's just why I was just kind of like, I'm not, I don't get this. So I made Lana and Bonnie the, the cast album. And when I listened to it, I was like, oh, I just like listening to this. But then with Showboat, it was like the story was so compelling to me. And the characters are really layered for the most part. And like, there just was a, something about the the gestures that Hal Prince was making. Because this is this was the Hal Prince 94 revival version. And I think just as a kid, I was so impressed by all those gestures. And just the music is so beautiful in Showboat. Just one of my favorite scores ever. Those were my gateways into musical theater. Like, I just loved those cast albums. And I used to play it at the cassette tape. And I would play it over and over and over and over and over again. I still have it. And, like, it's worn out on both sides. You can't see any of the words on the tape. Wow. Um, I know a family friend then shared the movie West Side Story with you, and you mm-hmm. said that after watching that, you lost your mind. And I'm wondering in what way. Yeah, so West Side Story was one of those cultural artifacts that I'd always heard of, but like didn't really know anything about. I don't even think I really even knew who Stephen Sondheim was. And to be clear, this is the movie. Yes, and like when I with sat Natalie Wood. With Natalie Wood and... um. Rita Moreno. And like, I found, like, I just, again, it was like the music and like the dancing and like the story was just, I just, all those elements together with such attention to detail and style and all those things. I wasn't at an age where I could really reckon with the sort of problematic aspects of it as given that it's like three white writers sort of talking about you know, Latin people, but just the the artistic gestures of it, like, so just bowled me over. I just had never seen anything that that was that stylish and that exciting and and virtuosic sounding and looking to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, and the dancing. Yeah. I mean, I I used to, in my basement, I would try to, I don't know, I'm not a dancer, but like, I used to try to mimic the America dance. Like, I just was Mm. so like, it just used to make me like get so emotional. I just was it just was so good like watching them do yeah. that. Did you see the revival this past year on Broadway? I did. What did you think? No comment. Not sure I want to go into this topic. <laughs> no, no, I don't mind going it, but like it's probably the less said the better. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. It was complicated and, and problematic in a lot of ways. There were parts that I thought were extraordinary, but I thought mm-hmm. it was also problematic. I mean, I guess let me just say this. Like, I can be a little bit of a purist. And when I say I'm a purist, it doesn't mean that I think that you have to do something the same way every time. But I do feel like I, I, I sometimes get a little allergy to to artists who sort of think that they know better about everything without understanding deeply why the core of something works. And like, I'm looking for them to like build on top of it with the understanding of actually how it works and and how to deepen what works about it as opposed to totally reinventing and then losing the things that make the thing the thing. Because at the end of the day, it still is a text and and so I just I think I just had a feeling 
watching that production that like the director felt like he knew better and i was like sir you do not (laughs) michael you mentioned just a few minutes ago coming out to yourself when you were 16 I know that you came out to your parents when you're 17, mm-hmm. and you said that that was rough. Um, mm-hmm. How so? Um, well, I come from like a very religious family. Like we are, like we're like super in the church, like from the in the Baptist church. Um, my entire entire life, I went to church every Sunday until I was 18 years old. And homosexuality does not fit into that. And so we had to go through a long period of uh, struggle around that. And I had to go through a long period of struggle around that because I wasn't at that time secure enough to, to really sort of stand in the truth of who I was in the way that I would come in the years to follow. Have they come to accept you as is? Yeah, my parents completely and utterly love me and are proud of me and are, like, we're in a different place than we were when I was 17 years old. That doesn't mean that they are completely different people with or with completely different views, but they love me and they will stand up for me, like, always. Like, I, they are my biggest champions of all time. I accept them for who they are in the same ways that they accept me for who I am, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I know you got a full scholarship to go to Michigan State, but decided not to go with your parents' support. Yeah. What made you decide not to go to Michigan State? So I, my real dream school was to go to Columbia. And I like had all my, like my eggs were just in that Columbia basket because I had like my white friends were at Columbia and I could go be at Columbia on the quad and have the sort of TV felicity life that I just imagined that I would have at that time. And then I was visiting Columbia during my spring break and in the dorms with my friends and meeting their friends and being excited that maybe next year I'll be here with you. And then I called my parents and they read me my Columbia rejection letter. How did you manage that? I was like devastated. But then they read me my NYU acceptance letter. And I'd forgotten I'd even applied to NYU, and I knew I'd had that scholarship to Michigan State the whole time, but I was just like, I want to be in New York. Like, I went down and looked at the NYU sort of campus, as it were, and it wasn't really one, it was just a city. Just a city. And I just was like, I want to be a writer. Like, that's like what I'm interested in doing. And I think I just made the case to my parents, and they sort of, true to form, have been like very supportive of need chasing my dreams and following my dreams. And so, like, they were like, okay, well, we'll turn down the scholarship to Michigan State and we'll all take out ginormous loans for you to go to one of the most expensive private schools in the country. Which is another reason why, like, I credit so much to them because they just truly did not have to do that. There's so many parents who just said, no, we can't afford it, we won't do that. But they took on that burden that they still carry to this day. Um, for me to come to the city and have a go at it. I was also rejected from Columbia. I think they have particularly harsh rejection letters. I'm still not quite <laughs> over it. <laughs> I mean, actually, to be honest with you, like, it's really for the best that I wasn't accepted yeah. as an undergrad because also if I had gone there as an undergrad, I would have had to have been like an English major, 
which was like also what would have happened if I had gone to Michigan State. And I did not want to like be an English major. I wanted to write, you know, so going to the dramatic writing program at NYU, while itself as an undergrad was a mixed bag, I'm glad I did it. One of your first year teachers, a man named John Poglinko. Oh my uh, gosh, on- Debbie, you're so good. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> and I'm not he surprised, but no one, like, no, <laughs> literally no one has asked me, like, so many things that you've asked me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so John Puglinko, he taught a class on the craft of playwriting and screenwriting. And I understand that he shared a definition of story mm-hmm. that you've carried with you to this day. And I'm wondering if you can share it with us. Yeah, uh, John defines story as a character wants something, they're presented with obstacles, and they either achieve, abandon, or fail at their story purpose. Which I just find is, for me, it's just always been like this very simple, boiled down way of thinking about what's happening in something I'm writing if everything else is failing. If I can just boil it down to, like, what do they want? What are they doing to get it? Do they win, do they lose, or do they change or abandon into something else? You've said that it helped you prioritize story over yes. everything else. How do, you, how do you go about doing that? How do you make that conscious decision? Well, I guess it's like, it depends on what I'm writing. Like, it was, that's a different answer in some ways for A Strange Loop than it is for my other musical, White Girl in Danger, because the structure of both of those pieces is so different. And so I have to, like, just know kind of what the journey is. Like, for our Strange Loop for so long, I didn't know that the, the issue there was that you have a character who wants to change, fundamentally change himself and thinks that something's wrong with him. And the, the truth is, is that there's nothing wrong with him. Like, once I mm. knew that that was the journey, then it was easy to go back and, like, order all the, the steps and story points that would lead to that conclusion. And for him to have that conclusion. Yeah, I actually came upon a, a quote about that. And reading what this play has taught you about yourself was, mm-hmm. was really moving. You state that Usher, your main character, didn't know that he hated himself. And you didn't know that you hated yourself. And you didn't know that's what it was. And in fact, there was nothing wrong with you. Uh, once you know that there's nothing wrong with you, you can actually move forward, albeit with a lot of the same problems, but not from the point of view that there's something wrong with you. Right. Michael, how did you come to that realization that's so profound and you're so young to have figured that out? <laughs> um, I guess it, well, it was a lot of hitting my head against the same wall, like over and over again in various areas of my life, whether it was like, how I felt about myself in terms of other men, other gay men, whether it was when I was working like terrible day jobs that were like soul crushing and like racist and capitalist and just bearing down on me. And then me feeling within that, that somehow there was a failure within me to like beat a system that was like bigger and older than I was. It was like, I had to go through many cycles, many loops of like that, plus going to therapy and, like, actually yeah. sitting and talking to someone. And, like, I just happened to go to this one particular therapist and did this modality of therapy called gestalt therapy. And we do this thing called tapping, where you tap all over your body and you, like, repeat a phrase and you say something like, um, even though I hate my job, 
I completely and totally love myself. Even mm. though I, uh, I'm making this up, even though I feel rejected by other men, I completely and totally love myself. And like, and you do that and, and stuff would just start to come up sometimes. Just through that process, I finally got to a place where I was like, oh, I'm actually okay. Like, it's not me. It's like the world around me. And that I'm just absorbing the messages the world is sending me about who I am. And I don't have to do that. The world is the same, but my perception shifts. I can like see forward through the cloud of my unworthiness. Mm. Oh, that's so beautiful. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. Oh, of course. You've called your undergraduate years the lost years in your life. How come? Because, so, as I mentioned, I really wanted to go to Columbia, and then I didn't get into Columbia, and then I went to NYU, and, like, the truth of it is, is, like, and I didn't know this at the time, but the truth is that I really just wanted to be in New York. I just wanted to be away from my parents and, like, independent and, like, live, like, a free life because up until that point, I felt very stifled in this sort of, like, black middle class life that I had led my entire life. And so, like, I chose to go study playwriting, although my real dream was to be a soap opera writer. Like, I, I that was, like, my plan. I was like, I was going to go to NYU. There's still time, Michael. There's still time. Well, there, that's a other, whole other story. But, like, um, but because of that, I'm this 18-year-old in New York who falls in love with playwriting. But the truth of playwriting is a study of human behavior and psychology. And I just wasn't old enough to really have much of anything to say yet. I was still, was just, I was just like, just beginning my life. And the teachers there, who some of them were good or whatever, they were mostly not good at like recognizing that there might be some students who just were literally coming of age, mm-hmm. but they're like being paid to teach you a specific thing. So like I learned certain technical skills in terms of writing but the thing they can't teach you is about human behavior and psychology. You have to know that, which is why I would always caution any 18-year-olds from going to playwriting school, not because like you can't, you can't get something out of it, but like the thing that you just can't know is that you don't know much about life by then, and that it's probably better if you're going to go to a playwriting program to wait to do a graduate school and like major in something else and maybe take a playwriting class or something. And I just did I just didn't know any of that stuff at the time. And so like those years were just me sort of bouncing around, taking my writing classes, taking my modern drama and classic drama classes and and just having this narrow thing of like, and then I'll write for one life to live. Like I didn't have any like there was no deeper the person who would come to write a strange loop was not even on the radar. Like he I was still just in my little bubble of like go to college, get a job. Like that, there was nothing deeper or artful about any of those times. So like, I just called the lost years because of that, because there, I just had no guidance and I didn't know really what I was doing. You decided to go to graduate school and you were also rejected from every school you applied to, except the NYU graduate musical theater program. Mm-hmm. NYU really likes you. Uh, yeah, um, apparently, or they like my <laughs> loan money. <laughs> but you'd never written a musical or even written a song lyric. What inspired you to apply to the musical theater department in the first place, not having ever written a musical or even a song lyric? 
Well, it was a couple things. I was very musically inclined because of my background playing piano, and I used to play for church, and so I used to try to write songs when I was in like high school, but I didn't understand lyric form or song form, and so I sort of gave that up. But I still would like make up little tunes on the piano, and then when I graduated from undergrad, I like graduated a semester earlier than I thought I was going to. And I just didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I just felt like very at sea. So I just applied to a bunch of grad schools. And this boy that I liked, who was also applying to the grad musical theater writing program, said, hey, let's apply to the grad musical theater writing program together. So I was like, okay. So we applied. We both got in. We like hooked up over that summer. And then he started dating someone else. I was devastated. And then we were both in the program together. We were ushering at the Lion King together. The person he was dating also worked with us at the Lion King. It was just like, and then, so I saw him all day. Sounds like one life all to live. Day. Yeah, it was really a survivor. Right. But like I applied just because I felt like I needed some more time to figure things out, essentially. And it, But it ended up actually being like a really important move for me because my grad school years were not the lost years at all. Like I grew in leaps and bounds very quickly because once I learned what song form was as a lyricist, the musical impulses had somewhere to go. And like by the end of my first year, a teacher just happened to give an assignment saying, if you're a lyricist who's never written music and you want to do that, go for it and vice versa. And so I decided to take my musical impulses, put it with my lyric impulses, which were really honed by then. And the song that came out of it was a song called Memory Song, which is the yes. penultimate song in A Strange Loop. But at that time, it was just a standalone song for me. But like, if I hadn't gone to the program or any of those things, none of those things would have happened. And the teachers in the NYU grad program were incredibly nurturing to me artistically and like encouraged me to keep doing what I was doing and growing and all that stuff. So like, those years were really vital. Memory Song being the first song you've ever written is quite a first song to have ever written, Michael. I mean, <laughs> thank you. It, as you said, I mean, it's, it's the crescendo moment in A Strange Loop. When I read that that was the first song you ever wrote, I actually had to verify that because I couldn't <laughs> believe that, it, that that's like saying, you know, Joni Mitchell's first song is A Case of You. <laughs> oh, my just, gosh. <laughs> yeah, that's a hell of a first song. I mean, but her, yeah, I mean, all her first songs, like, even, I, I could talk about Joni forever, but... Um, I know, me too. I know, uh, I know. I saw that your your biggest musical influences are Tori Amos, Liz Fair, and Joni Mitchell. I was like, mm-hmm. I'm in love with Michael Jackson now. <laughs> I mean, we're cut from the same cloth. The same, this, that's right. three powerful female songwriters. Yeah, yeah, um, I learned a lot you, from them. When did you first discover their work? Like, who turned you on to Joni Mitchell? Um, So I think the first, Joni Mitchell song that I really was aware of was uh, My Old Man because my mm-hmm. friend Becky who in middle school had given me a copy of Blue and I just loved the sort of harmonic progression of uh, that song and so I liked it but I wasn't like a super fan by that point. When I was in high school I bought there was like in the bargain bin at Borders, there was a copy of her 1985 album, Dog Eat Dog. And mm. I bought it because it was like five ninety five or something. And I listened to it and I was like, oh, this isn't like what I sort of had heard about this person, but I liked it enough 
to keep listening to it. And so then I bought all right in a row. I got like Horton Spark, Hagira, and uh, Hissing on Summer Lawns. Mm. And I just was like, that's it. And they just like <laughs> those, like those albums. Just I was just ready for them. After that, I went and bought everything I could get my hands on. So I have like have all of heard- her albums. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I was just so I was excited to ask if you have heard Prince's cover of A Case of You. No. So I actually, I was familiar more with Tori Amos's cover of A Case of You, which is yes. beautiful, 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 beautiful. But I, have I don't think I've ever heard of covers. Oh, I'll, that's so I'll send cool. it to you. Yes, I have a collection do. of covers of every cover I've been able to find of A Case of You. And listeners, if you know of one, send me the artist who's done it and I'll find it because I am looking to create the world's largest collection of covers of A Case of You. Oh, that's so, oh, that's so cool. That's a, that's a great side <laughs> project. But yeah, so my, I became aware of her through my friend Becky. And then from there on, I just sort of like hunted everything down myself. You've written about how white rocker women can let you know everything that's going on with them in their music and can do it without facing any consequences. And whereas if you're a black person, you will inevitably have to pay the consequences for that. What consequences have you had to pay? I think if I said that, I probably, what I more meant was that Listening to, like, Liz and Tori and Joni, the thing that I found most inspirational was their sort of individual voice and their commitment to saying what they had to say without giving any fucks about it. That they just said it, what they had to say, and they didn't care what anyone thought. And and also, like, being, like, very emotional and tempestuous and funny and sexual and, like, they just could... They could do anything, as I say in the song Inner White Girl and Strange Loop. And I just was so inspired by that. But feeling like, as a Black artist, that that quality was less appreciated, or it seemed to me at the time, particularly as a teenager, which is when I, like, encountered a lot of this music. And I just was... I think I just began going on, like, a journey to figure out if there's a way that I could in my own art and later in my own music be that singular in expression and not be boxed in by any outside expectation. What do you think of the brouhaha surrounding Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's song, Wet Ass Pussy? <sighs> so that's a difficult one for me to talk about. I guess like when I listen to Wet Ass Pussy... I just feel like we're in a moment of... When I, I don't want to say lowest common denominator because that's not what I mean. But what I mean is, like, to me... And, I'm, and I want to be very clear. I'm not a cis woman. I don't have a vagina. So I, in some ways, there's no reason for me to talk about this. But I am an artist, and I am someone who absorbs popular culture and so my just observation about what ass pussy is just that it was pretty dry to me like for a song that's called wet ass pussy artistically speaking it was pretty dry i'm more shocked by liz fair songs flower 
because of the tension that she puts in that song about talking about like her sexual desire, but singing it in like a baby girl, baby doll voice. Like, and so when I look, listen to Wet Ass Pussy, it just seems like something that was thrown together and is not as empowering as it could be artistically like i'm not talking about like it, how it empowers women but just like the right. art the more art, melodically like, maybe or it's, just I as a know, structure like, of I a just, song yeah like i just was on i'm just unimpressed by the song as a song but it also feels like the kind of thing that's like you know in a moment like this when everybody's so stressed out about our world and life fine what ass pussy let's Wop, 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 wop. Like, I mean, that, like, I get it. Like, it's like, it's, it's catchy. It's, it's something you can bop along to. But I just, as a song, I'm like, let's raise the bar. Let's do things that are like, make me feel it. Make me see it. Like, I want to see it dripping. And like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I know that sounds so stupid that I said that. But like, no, I but that's it. just, I, I mean, totally just, that's it. just my, that's just my opinion of it. I mean, Cardi is a hop icon of our time she'll you know god bless her i mean who am i i'm just a little old humble negro musical theater writer <laughs> like oh, well. in new york city michael michael come on come on all right let's start saying. talking about some of yeah let's 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 be real here <laughs> right. you're a hell of a lot more than that yeah that and then some when did you start working on the monologue why i can't get work and how would you describe it for our listeners yeah so that was a monologue that i started writing like the semester before I was leaving NYU, which was not that far after September 11th. And I just was about to graduate and I didn't know what I was going to do with my playwriting degree. And I was just feeling also just generally insecure about my place in the world. And so I decided to just write this sort of thinly veiled personal monologue about a young black gay man walking around New York wondering why life was so terrible. You had the opportunity to perform it at Ars Nova and did what you called the one-man show version of the monologue. So the, the monologue itself got performed at the old Center Stage New York at the Developing Artists Theatre Company by an actor um, named David Rain, who I'd never known what happened to him. He was an underwear model. And then I went to grad school and then I began writing music t- on the side because I was paired with a composer for my thesis project. And then I wrote a bunch of ind- standalone songs that seemed to speak thematically, seemed to thematically overlap with the monologue. And I started working with this director to put those together. And as we put those together, that then turned into a one-man show called Fast Food Town that I performed right. at Ars Nova in uh, 2006 or seven. You refer to fast food town as a dead trunk song. Yes, I've never I've never heard that term before. Yeah, how many dead trunk song songs do you have? Oh, more than I could count. Like there's so many really? that that either were only performed once or like never were ever performed that I just sort of wrote and couldn't figure out what to do with. And you know, although I like, I actually do want to resurrect the music from it at some point and like do a new lyric but it just was you know it was a song that like served its purpose for that that iteration when did you change the name of what you were starting to make and beginning to structure as a strange loop i did the one man show version probably like 20 people showed up two people walked out and i came from that like 
knowing I still had something in the soup of what I was working with, but I was like, I don't want to be in whatever this is. And I don't want it to be like a cabaret act. I want it to be a prop, quote unquote, proper musical, albeit a probably unconventional one. And so I just started working with this director. Was that Stephen Brackett? No, you're, that you're was, cur- oh, okay. it, it wasn't. It was uh, Maria Goyanis. And okay. we we started working with the Playwrights Realm, which is this theater company in New York, on just sort of trying to crack a structure. And in between the one-man show version and working with them, I had written like a draft that had many threads and pieces to it. And one of the threads in it was that the character of Usher, which all of that developed sort of in the interim. Like before that, it was like, it was Michael was speaking. Like that was what it was. And then I decided, I don't want it to be that. I need to be a character. And so the character Usher was created and one of the threads in the story was that he had this obsession with Liz Fair's music and that he was writing these mashups of songs that he wrote against songs that she written. So, for example, Liz Fair has a song called Fuck and Run. And so there is a version of the song Today, which is still in Strange Loop, the song Today, that I could play literally a mashup on top of fucking run. And so I'd written a bunch of those in the show and Usher was trying to get Liz's permission to use her music. And one of the song and the, the show culminated in a mashup of a song that Usher slash I had written called Fanboy that was going to be played against the track Strange Loop that's on Liz Fair's Exile and Guyville album. And I always loved Which was a response to the Rolling Rolling Stones Stones, Exile Exile on Main Main Street. Street. So there's a whole strange loop there, too. And that was like part of the mechanics of how that was working in the show. But I always loved the song Strange Loop, but I didn't know what it meant because Strange Loop is not a hook in the song, it's just the name of it. And so finally, after a while, I decided to Google the term to see what if it like referred to anything. And then the thing that came up was Douglas Hofstadter who talks about the the notion of a self and the notion of I and how I and the notion of a self is in your brain is a bunch of meaningless symbols sort of referring back to themselves in order to create the notion of I, which was essentially what uh, Strange Loop was trying to be. And so it was this weird thing of like, you can only define a self by referring back to a self. And so I was like, oh, that's what a strange loop is. Like, that, that's, what the, that's what this piece is. And so I was like, I'm just going to call this a strange loop. And like, that's how it took on that title. When my wife, Roxane Gay, first mentioned she wanted to go see your play and she told me the name, I was like, what? There's a musical about Douglas Hofstadter's book? <laughs> <laughs> she had no idea what I was talking about. So right. then so it became a little bit of our own strange loop. You've said that um, Hofstadter's theory gave you a container for mm-hmm. a piece that was inherently about self-reference. And I also read an interview with you where you cited the W.E.B. Dubois quote about double consciousness. Right. How did that impact your viewpoint? Well, I guess W.E.B. Du Bois talks about how to be a, a Black person in this country is to have a double consciousness. That wasn't like an explicit thing that was in the soup of what I was writing. It just, it was inherent in my own experience and and thus Usher's own experience of life is that like we're African-American people who live in this sort of 
white container. And yet we ourselves are black people who are having our own experiences of self. So like, that's why in A Strange Loop, it's like Usher is creating the context for his, for like his piece, but he's also responding to the world outside. That's like also impacting the, the thing that he's creating the context for. So it's this constant duality of like the white world and the black world and Usher sort of like being the, the little molecule that's floating back and forth between those worlds. I found something that I I didn't know if you'd seen and I wanted to share it with you. I don't know if you know that there's something called the Boisipedia. Oh no, I don't know what that is. Yeah. So, um, so I found this in, in researching what you meant by double consciousness. And so I just wanted to read this to you because I thought you'd really enjoy it. So double consciousness is a term to describe an individual whose identity is divided into several facets. As a theoretical tool, double consciousness reveals the psychosocial divisions in American society and allows for a full understanding of those divisions. Dubois's focus on the specificity of Black experience allows for challenging injustice in national and world systems. Mm-hmm. The term was first used in an Atlantic monthly article titled Strivings of the Negro People in 1897 and was later republished with minor edits under the title of Our Spiritual Strivings in the 1903 book The Souls of Black Folk. I mm-hmm. thought our listeners might be interested in that too. You know, that's really that's that's really great. Um, a strange loop is about a character named Usher. He is a heavy-set queer black man who works as an usher for the Lion King while struggling to create a musical about a heavy-set queer black man who is struggling to write a musical. Did having a character who was an usher named Usher have anything to do with your sharing your name with a famous musician? I mean, so the thing that I always try to, like, remind people about A Strange Loop is that it's not autobiographical. I think of it as self-referential. Or if I had to characterize it in any sort of way as autobiographical, I would say it's emotionally autobiographical, which is to say that I have felt everything that Usher has felt, but the story of Usher in A Strange Loop is a piece of fiction, even if I drew from some of my own personal experiences to write it. And so there are many loops within loops of the show because it has to do with self-reference that I felt like it was important to echo my own experience by having Usher be a quote-unquote famous name that is because that's just that's all that's like my I name is such a huge part of like how people relate to me because of Michael Jackson the pop star that like this idea that there's this person in the world who as he's th- trying to figure out who he is and change himself there's still other people who still think of someone else first when they meet him right and that he's like, no, I'm the center of this story. I'm the the nucleus. And, and yet I hate the nucleus. And so I'm fighting to be someone else, which people already think of me of. Like, I just wanted to create as many sorts of loops that take him both far away from himself and closer to himself at the same time. I just wanted to create like the sort of paradoxes of that. 
Does it ever get tired, people asking you about your name? Um, no, because at this point, I feel like I own the mantle. Mm, yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm probably at this, I mean, I don't say this in a bragging way, but like, just, it, and I just, I'm just realizing that I'm probably at this point the most famous living Michael Jackson. Yes, you are. You know what I mean? Which is After, like, but like, but yeah. still, I, my website is called The Living Michael Jackson and all my social media handles are The Living Michael Jackson because I also want to remind people that whenever you think about me, think about him. You know, like, it's that I can never get away from it. And yet, when I reference it, it refers back to me because I created that structure of referring to him when you refer to me. After 18 years, A Strange Loop debuted off-Broadway at Playwrights Horizon. It ran from May 24th to July 18th, 2019. The original cast recording was released on September 27th, 2019, and peaked at number six on the Billboard cast albums chart. The show got extraordinarily good reviews. And on May 4th of this year, you were awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. The committee cited this about the show. A Strange Loop is a metafictional musical that tracks the creative process of an artist transforming issues of identity, race, and sexuality that once pushed him to the margins of the cultural mainstream into a meditation on universal human fears and insecurities. Congratulations, Michael. This is, this is epic. This is major. Thank you, Debbie. You also won the New York Drama Circle Award, the Off-Broadway Alliance Award, the Dramatist Guilds Award, and the Lambda Literary Award. The show is the first musical in history written by a Black person to win, and the first musical to win without a Broadway run. Michael, how did you find out about winning the Pulitzer? Did they just call you? Did they just tell you? Did they just announce it on Twitter? How did it happen? Um, so they have, like, they announced it online. I wasn't watching the ser- the announcement because I was on the phone with my friend Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, and he was watching it. And, like, we were just talking about something else. And then he told me that I had won. Um, and then my phone. Did you even start- know that you were you were not like how did how did I, one apply to I, get nominated? Well, <laughs> after the show closed, Playwrights Horizon submitted the show for consideration, but that was like many months prior, and I like had forgotten about it. I mean, some people like I knew it was going to be announced, but I just didn't think I would get it, and so right. I just had put it out, kind of put it out of my mind. And then we were just talking, and then he was like, Michael, you won, you won. And I was like, what? And he's like, you won the Pulitzer. And I was like, oh, my, what? For real? You know? And then, like, my phone started, like, exploding, and then I was like, I had to go, and I had to, like, talk to a lot of people. Were you screaming? Like, I'd have been screaming. I don't even know. I can't I, mean, even I was envision. like, well, because of the pandemic, I was just like, I can't do anything. Because, like, ordinarily... Right. I would have like got, gotten on the train and gone and meet up with my friends or like my strange loop people or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it would have been something like that, but I couldn't do that. So the only thing I did was like, I, I went for a walk and it happened to be like a, <laughs> a fairly nice day that day. And 
listen to Shaka Khan and Luther Landros because like that felt like the most celebratory music I could find on my phone <laughs> so I like listen yeah. to never too much never too much never too much <laughs> ain't nobody <laughs> exactly love me better <laughs> exactly like it was that was all that's what I that was like the and then I came back and like my producer um had arranged a little zoom champagne toast somebody sent me a bottle of champagne through like drizzly you know and like we had a little zoom celebration and it was really nice you mentioned um the strange loop folks um, after the director, Stephen Brackett, read your script, he recommended that you cast the show with all Black and queer folks. Yes. You did that and have said that in doing that, it opened up entirely new possibilities for what the play could be. How so? So before Stephen had made that suggestion, the piece always had this Black queer center to it. But like the characters of the thoughts, which I hadn't yet settled on their identities... They were just sort of like patrons at the theater or like just people in the world where I had done readings where like white people had played some of them and black people had played some. Like a little known fact is Saeed Jones was in the very first reading of A Strange Loop, just the book of it, like just reading. He played, yeah. like he yeah, was brought in. Yeah, he's been a the, guest on the show. It, he's amazing. Yeah, he brought it like at the last minute he was like brought in to like read this one random part. And like, so it just was a lot of that. And then, and then when Stephen read the script, and because, because uh, the character, the mother, the main sort of iteration of the mother had always been read by John Andrew Morrison, who had been singing the song periodically since I wrote it. And like, Stephen had both seen him sing that song before, and he had directed him in singing that song before in a concert that he had directed of mine at Joe's Pub or and and the Beachman. And Stephen said that he always found that moment of me singing periodically with the mother at toward the end of the song. He said he always found that to be so moving that when he read the script, he felt like there might be opportunities to really capitalize on that. And when he suggested that, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. It was like implicitly already there. I just needed someone to like... Get to help me get there. I might have gotten there on my own eventually, but Stephen's just like, he, he has such exquisite taste and he has he's so smart and thoughtful and him suggesting that to me like also told me that he was the collaborator for me to continue working on the piece with. And so we did, we did a reading where we cast all black queer people on it and it was still a messy piece, but like it was powerful seeing those bodies telling this story in this way. As the play morphed over the last two decades, one thing you've said that has always been a part of the musical is its sexual candor. And the show covers territory that musicals have really never covered. Um, And they certainly haven't been comfortable in covering if they have. What gave you the courage to write about sex in such a deeply revealing way? There were moments watching the show where sort of Roxanne and I sort of grabbed each other's arms. It was so (laughs) intense and just evocative. So I guess that comes from, as a teenager, when I was in high school, I took creative writing as my elective all four years. And my teacher had our, our creative writing class connected with this organization called Inside Out in Detroit, which brings 
uh, writers and residents into the high schools to work with us so that kids can see writing as more than a hobby and also as an outlet. And one of the writers and residents who I worked with there also taught, his name was Peter Marcus, and he taught a private workshop out of his apartment in downtown Detroit. So I took that private workshop for a couple of sessions. And he was the first teacher who ever said to me to really find my obsessions and to keep writing about my obsessions over and over again. And it just so happened that one of those obsessions was sex. Every time I would write something, like something sexual would creep in. And that was partly because like I was just sort of coming out as gay and like in this religious context of my home. But then my cousin had brought me Tori Amos albums back from Interlochen. And then Tori was singing about like sexuality and religion. And that was like, God, sometimes you just don't come through. And like, do you need a woman to take care of you? And like, give me peace, love, and a hard cock. And all of all of that, like, was just swirling inside of me and speaking. Like, that was my inner white girl at that moment. So my writing began to reflect the questions and the feelings and the lust and all the things that I was feeling that but couldn't really talk about in polite society, I guess. And then that just carried over in my writing. And then just in my life as like a, a black gay man coming of age, I was, was surrounded by lots of black gay boys when I was in high school who were all dating each other and sleeping with each other and breaking up and dating each other. Like it was just a whole soap opera. And then I was on, I was on the fringes of that because I wasn't necessarily the most desirable among them. And I, but then just when I got accustomed to that, it was time to go to New York. Then when I got to New York, it was like a different social structure. And I couldn't really find black gay anything anywhere that I knew of. Because this is pre-sort of social media. This is pre-grinder. This is pre-everything. And so what I ran into was a predominantly white gay world that I think was you called not, it the gay, the gay, gay, gay triarchy. The gay triarchy. And I just, yeah. and I spent many years suffering and trying to like fit into that. What is the gay triarchy? What, what is it exactly? Like to me, the gay triarchy is our, like, are the white gay men who sort of rule the social, sexual culture. And they just were, were the standard. Um, or that's what it felt like. And right. even though I'd come out of this very black context, I didn't. I like I didn't have any su- that support around me when I was like in my twenties into my early thirties, and so it was just like a very difficult time. And yet I was also having like these like horrifying sexual experiences too that I like felt like I deserved or that it was all I could get or whatever because I didn't have. That's a the hardest s- part of watching a strange loop is yeah. seeing that. Yeah. That's the hardest part. And that just was like that was just like a real thing and then I would blame myself for getting into these situations and blah 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 blah. And so once I realized that it's not me, I mean it's me in the sense that like I am making those choices and that that's why I have this song on the show called Boundaries, where the first words are, why did I do that? Like once I had that moment with myself of like, yes, these people are racist. Yes, 
like they're quote-unquote excluding you, but you also are participating in that exclusion. And so once I realized that, like, I had to, like, break out of that, it, it was just like, in writing a piece, I was like, the only way people will understand is if I really take them there. Take yes. them into the heart of self-hatred. Into how that can manifest. And into how the culture can create a beautiful package around that. Like, I just got finished watching all six seasons of Sex in the City. Mm-hmm. And, like, I just was so bowled over by, like, how much sort of abuse that those women sort of subject themselves to and bad sex and, like, but they do it all, like, <laughs> and the show is not really aware that that's what that is. But, like, to me in my life, I, I understand the, like, the pain and the ugliness and the agony of that, of, like, oh, no, you're actually putting yourself through this meat grinder for no reason. But it's always about feeling like you're not worth anything better. Correct. And so I just wanted to, in a strange loop, I was like, you know what? People, I think, need to just feel that. Like, the show, the show as a, just as a, structurally is about what it means to be a, a self in general and a Black queer self in particular. And so I wanted to create moments in the show where the audience is in Usher's shoes. Where, like, even if you're not a black, fat, black, queer man, that you can be in his shoes and experience the, like, isolation of that. Or if you are a fat, black, gay man, or just a black, gay man in general, you can feel validated or seen in the, like, isolation and the pain and the agony, but the ultimate sort of redemption of all of that. Um, and so, like, the only way I could do it was to really show the, like, gritty and the ugly, but, like, put it in, like, a, a musical frame that's also a little bit enticing. In prep for the show today, I came across an interview where you stated the following. As a Black person living in this white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, you're constantly translating. So I've always been interested in examining how race and Blackness in particular is translated through multiple identities. Mm -hmm. Michael, can you talk a little bit about how your characters in A Strange Loop are able to do that? So I think like one way is um, there's a scene in the show where Usher is in a meeting of the guardians of musical theater centrism, and one assumes mostly white musical theater icons or gatekeepers is the best best word, are like evaluating his script for A Strange Loop. And they're like, oh, I wish it were quieter. Or, oh, Mm. you should have more intersectionality here. Oh, it should be like, they're just sort of doing these like prescriptive, ways that are coming from their own understanding of of a white supremacist world and Usher is just sort of absorbing it and like he's not necessarily going to take any of their advice and yet I wanted to like present the sort of absurdity of all of them prescribing this that or the other to the way that he talks about his own life and like and I feel like there's so many people in this world who will do that particularly to people of color to, and particularly, particularly to African-American people because there's just this assumption that we don't have our own agency, our own sense of style, of taste, of humor, of like artistic sort of vision. And, and so like, I just wanted to sort of 
throw that on its head a bit. You've written that there's a specific kind of racism in the theater world. What does that racism look like and how does it affect your craft and your ambition? Um, I think the racism in the theater is just come is it just it just comes from the fact that like most of the people who are making the decisions in the theater world are white people who are used to talking to white people, used to making art for white people, and thus maybe have a limited sort of exposure beyond that. And so it's impacted me in different ways. Like over before my show was produced, it impacted me in that I didn't have as many opportunities to do things within the professional sphere. And I had to either create my own opportunities or hope that these sort of smaller opportunities could lead to a bigger one. But, and that, but then once I got, had the big opportunity, I was strong enough to sort of say what I wanted my experience of doing a strange loop to be like and to be as uncompromising in the show as I want it to be. And so like, I didn't, wouldn't say that I experienced any sort of racism while I was doing the show that was measure, at least that was measurable to me or significant. I, I would say that like, I had like a, a really, really positive experience working with Players Horizons and page 73, who I should mention was our co-producer, uh, yeah, like the racism is there. Like there, people just like don't know, and they make assumptions. And when you don't know and you make assumptions, they're going to be like racist assumptions a lot of the time. In the past couple of years, we've begun to see more diversity on stage with shows like Jeremy O'Harris's Slave Play, mm-hmm. Jackie Sibley's Jury's Fairview, both of which I've seen and are extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Do you think that these shows represent real change, or do you think that they're more symbolic? Um. I think it's either both of those things or neither of those things. I I think Mm. only time will tell because even if one were to, to, to accept that those shows represent change, there's still, there's still all the other things that are like the other shows that are to come that like, there's a certain framework that decides that Slave Play and Fairview or Strange Loop or whatever are important and like will make those shows important to the exclusion of other shows. And so as long as that is true, then to me that's not really going to be quote unquote change because there's still these like gatekeepers deciding what's important and what's not important based on a metric that only they know and decide, you know? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. But then yeah, but it's also it's symbolic change then if like we never get to see if those voices that decide that something is a change don't then let other things in, you know? So I don't know, like, and I, I sort of, you know, over the last couple of months of reflecting about various conversations in a theater about representation and so on and so forth. Like I sort of have decided that I, I myself can't let myself get too caught up in in what it means because I have to make my own work and I have to make sure that I am being the artist with the integrity that I want to be in the world and just trust that the people who believe in my work will help me get it seen and that once I get my work seen, it can inspire other people to also make work and create more opportunities for other people. But, you know, 
it's it's gonna be probably like most things, a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Michael, the last thing I want to talk to you about is what you're currently doing. I've read that you're working on a new musical called White Girl in Danger mm-hmm. with the Vineyard Theater. Um, wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about that. Yes. So White Girl in Danger is this silly idea, or it was a silly idea for this musical that I got years ago when I was in grad school that was sort of loosely just sort of based off of like, I must have seen a Lifetime movie or like, because I also love like those Lifetime movies, those old Lifetime movies from the 90s. And I came up with this little tune in my head where I said, white girl in danger, she's doing drugs, but she won't do her homework. You know, and I just thought it was like a funny little nugget that I just carried with me for many, many years. And then I got into the Dramatist Guild Fellowship and in the Dramatist Guild Fellowship, you can either work on a musical that you've been working on or you can start a new one. And since I'd gotten a bunch of development on A Strange Loop, I said, you know what, let me start a new piece so that I don't just get be like this writer who's only written one show. And so I was like, oh, what about this White Girl and Danger idea that I've had for a couple of years just about like basing something off of like a Lifetime-esque kind of movie. But by then, it also, many conversations in the world had moved toward talking about, quote-unquote, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and representation and all that stuff. And I had written like a blog piece that had gone sort of viral about that. And I decided that what if I created a show that's about, that's set in the world of like a Lifetime movie world or like a soap opera. And in that world, there are characters called All Whites. The town is called All Whites. And in that town, there's the All Whites. And then there's another class of people called the Black Round. And the Black Round are Black characters who are just there to sort of be day players in the All White people's lives. And one of the Black Round characters is this girl named Keisha, who decides she has what it takes to be the protagonist of her own all-white story. And so she sort of begs the writer of the universe to please let her be a protagonist. And so finally he sort of strikes her with lightning and she finds that her hair slowly starts turning blonde over the course of the story as she usurps the storylines from her three main rivals, Megan, Megan, and Megan, who are like the three like all-white girls who have like the hottest stories in town. Um, Megan has an abusive boyfriend. Megan has um, an eating disorder and like a, a controlling mother who like it will kill her if she doesn't get straight A's. And then Megan ha- has like a glow trotting beauty queen mother who like doesn't pay any, her any attention. And I just found I wanted to like create this context, this really entertaining context by which to discuss representation and some of the pitfalls of just relying on representation as a way of empowering people of color and Black people in particular in stories. One of the big tragedies of this epidemic is how it is decimating or has decimated the theater business. For sure. Um, Do you have any sense of where your play will be presented and and how? Are you thinking about the possibilities of television or writing a book? As of now, I have I still have the support of the vineyard behind it. I have a commercial producer who is supporting it. So I, you know, have hope that 
you know, we, that maybe that we'll be able to revisit the show in, if not 2021 and 2022, because we've been also been doing Zoom work, developmental workshops online um, that have been really helpful. I've written most of the score at this point. There's been quite a lot of development. And so I, I do feel like it will be on stage at some point. But that being said, I also think that because of the origin of it, that it would translate quite well to television. So I definitely am not counting that out. You've taken a long journey to success, Michael. And as we close today's show, I have two last questions for you. Mm -hmm. Um, The first is about perseverance. What advice can you give to anybody listening about resilience and continuing to pursue your artistic craft? The advice I would give to everyone is to really think about whether you actually want to be doing what you're doing. It can be like quite grueling and hard and lots of false starts and stops. And so I just would encourage people to like really think about that. And like if you can't live without making art or without writing, then you should do it. And once you decide to do that, you will find the way to do it. I didn't give myself any plan Bs whatsoever while I was writing. And I did have to work some like pretty miserable, horrible jobs that kept me from writing as full time as I would have liked. But it ultimately served me in the end because it all was just going back to me pursuing this dream. And my last question, after you won the Pulitzer, what was it like to be congratulated by Stephen Sondheim? (laughs) It was as surreal as it was to be congratulated by Tyler Perry. (laughs) Yes, I know. (laughs) It was... So for... It was, For our listeners that might not be aware, um, there's a there's a part in the play. Um, one of the storylines is the communication of the ensemble of Usher's inner thoughts as he's begrudgingly ghostwriting a new Tyler Perry play, <laughs> right? Which he's very um, sort of negative about. So, what was it like to to hear from Tyler Perry after being so critical of his work? It was nice. He, he here's the thing. He's by all accounts and by my experience with him now. He's a very nice man. Like he's very philanthropic. He like he cares a lot about people. I my issue with him has always been a craft one. And that's the part that I find in criticism of him that people don't really zero in on. They like try to make it about other frankly like kind of racist or anti-black stuff and that's not my issue. My issue is literally a craft issue. But that being said, like, he took time out of his schedule to call me on the phone and to congratulate me. And I, and that actually means a lot. And so I actually texted him the other day because he won an award. And I just wanted to, like, put out that sort of olive branch. I still have my notes. And, and, mm-hmm. my, and my notes are never going away. But, like, I can respect what he does as an artist who is making the work that he wants to see in the world, even if I have issues with it. With regards to Sondheim, I mean, he's like one of the great ones of our time and our indus- of my industry. And he's not a, like a musical influence on me per se, but like as a storyteller, I draw from him. Like the beginning of the show itself is a kind of homage to company. 
And to hear that he was able to proceed and understand the show and like feel moods by it just felt really validating and or it felt gratifying. Like I don't, I don't need validation, but like it felt like someone whose work I admire so much that they, they admire my work. It makes me feel good. Michael R. Jackson, thank you so much for creating such an extraordinary and groundbreaking play. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. I enjoyed talking to you. You can find out more about Michael R. Jackson and read a lot of his work as well, a lot of his writing on his website, thelivingmichaeljackson.com. This is the 16th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded in non-pandemic times at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. 